Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. You know, a few weeks ago on the podcast, I touched on a subject that's very important to us here at Gateway Seminary, and that is having a global perspective. You know, our three uh, watchwords in our byline at Gateway are biblical, missional, global. And we express that global perspective in a lot of different ways. In fact, on the podcast a few weeks ago, I talked about my experience of teaching this summer, traveling to Turkey and meeting with a group of students there for both doctoral instruction and personal mentoring and leadership. It was a really enriching experience for me. But another way that Gateway Seminary maintains a global perspective and tries to develop a global perspective in its students and other constituents is by having faculty that literally serve all around the world. A few years ago, we entered into a really unique relationship with a new faculty member, Dr. Phil Hopkins. Uh, Dr. Hopkins is professor of church history at Gateway Seminary, but he has the unique responsibility of living and working in Armenia while serving on our faculty. When I say serving on our faculty, I don't mean just teaching an occasional class by some online means. I mean, I, what I really mean is he participates fully as an integrated part of our academic community. Dr. Hopkins not only teaches for us by uh, electronic and distance means from Armenia, but he also participates in faculty meetings, department meetings, other seminary activities. In fact, it always uh, excites me when I log into a meeting here at Gateway that involves the faculty or the staff or all employees, and I look up on the Zoom, on the Zoom screen, and there in the corner will be Phil, usually logged in early, so he can be sure that he's a part of all we're doing here at Gateway. So I'd like to welcome this morning my guest from Armenia, uh, Dr. Phil Hopkins, Professor of Church History here at Gateway Seminary. Phil, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. Well, we're going to talk today about your life and ministry, and particularly as it relates to this theme that I've been developing uh, of developing a more global perspective for ministry leaders. So why don't you introduce yourself a little more fully? Tell us you know, how long you've lived and worked internationally, where you've been, and what roles you've served. Just kind of give us a short bio this uh, today to help us know who you are. I've been overseas. My wife and I have been overseas for around 20 years. We have lived from anywhere from Western Europe to Central Asia, um, London, Turkey, Armenia. My wife lived in Uzbekistan. She was, did a master's degree there years and years ago, right after the fall of the Soviet Union. We have... Um, Started small businesses, been part of some charities, been a student, I did a second PhD overseas, and now I'm a professor. You said that you did a second PhD overseas. Uh, you just sort of dropped that in there. Why don't you tell everyone about some of your academic background and uh, what you've pursued and accomplished in the academic studies? Well, my first PhD was from Southeastern Seminary. I, I uh, researched uh, John Piper and his understanding of, of Calvinism and how it relates to his understanding of missions. And I wanted to see how he could be a Calvinist and still be passionate for the loss and for missions. And I thought it was just intriguing for him to, to, to be both of those. And I wanted to find out more. Right. Uh, the sec- which the second PhD, I, I focused on Iranians, uh, Iranian Christians prior to the Islamic Revolution. And Christianity in Iran, Christianity in Iran has been around for, for ages, and not many people know that. But before 1979, there were maybe, the, the stats vary between 100 to 500 Christians in Iran that were from Muslim backgrounds. Now, 
Christianity in Iran with the change in government to an Islamic revolution, to an Islamic Republic, there are thousands upon thousands of Christians in Iran that are from Muslim backgrounds. What I wanted to do was to ask the question from a secular sociological perspective, why were there so few Christians in Iran prior to the Islamic Revolution? And that just was something that intrigued me. My wife said I needed a hobby, and one thing led to another, and that's how I did a second PhD. That's awesome. Uh, you just raised a very significant issue, and that is there are Christians uh, in Iran. And this is part of what I'm trying to get people on the podcast, listeners on the podcast, to understand, and that is that Christianity is a global movement. It's happening in all kinds of places, and it's happening in surprising ways in places like Iran. So uh, without perhaps disclosing anything you shouldn't or talking about anyone that would be a, a risk, give us a snapshot of what the Christian church is like in Iran and how you've experienced it and how you see it growing. The Christian church in Iran... Um, you know, it's, it's interesting you, you mentioned that because you would think the, the opposite would happen, that during the, the period of the, the, the Shah, that there would be, there'd be lots of Christians. Uh, we, there were mission agencies prior to 1979 that actually had their, their AGMs in, in Iran because it was a safe place. It was, it was welcoming to Westerners. But when the Westerners left, the few Christians that remained had to make their Christianity indigenous. They had to make it their own. They couldn't really rely on the West as much as they, they, they did before. That happened largely through, through Christianity really just focusing in on, on the language of, that the many Iranians speak, which is Persian. The house church movement happened, which, which aided a lot of what was going on. And, and the indigenous Christians that were there, the ethnic Christians that were there already, the Assyrians and Armenians played a role as well. So it was a combination of, of lots of different things that, that have led to there being um, an explosion of Christianity in Iran. Mm. A, guy named Rod, a guy named Ronnie Stark, who's a sociologist, stated that it usually takes from the time that missionaries arrive into Iran for the first time it usually takes about 150 years or so for Christianity to explode. And I don't know if I'm quoting him correctly or not, because you can look at his work. And that's been right around the time. Now it's been since around, it's been about 150 years since, since, since missionaries brought Christianity into Iran. Wow, that's so exciting to hear. And I'm so glad that you've had an opportunity to study that in such detail. And uh, really not not just to make an analysis of it, but to be a part of the missional movement of what's happening in that part of the world. But today, uh, you live and work out of Armenia. And so tell us about what it's like there. What's it like being a family living and working in that international context? Well, Armenia is considered to be the oldest Christian nation in the world. Armenia adopted Christianity in 301 AD. Uh, moving here, it's it's quite different than, than America. It, Armenia was part of the part of the Soviet Union. So when Armenia uh, gained its independence when the Soviet Union fell, Armenia has its own language, its own script. They are um, sandwiched in between, you know, Turkey is to the west of Armenia, Iran is to the south, Azerbaijan is to the east, and the country of Georgia is to the north. So three out of four countries are quite Muslim, and Armenia has been able to maintain its, its Christianity, and that's in, with Armenia's influence in Iran and their Armenian Christianity in Iran. 
is allowing me to do some research that I wouldn't be able to do. And I'm very, been very fortunate that the Gateway has given me the opportunity to be here so I can conduct the research that I do. Yeah. Tell me about uh, your family life there. Uh, what's daily life like for you in terms of being an academic in that context and a family living in that context? With me, and I connect with some universities here. Um, I'm able to, there are the academic programs in Armenia for the, area, the areas that I'm interested in, the Oriental Studies areas, are pretty robust. So I have an opportunity to be part uh, on the, I'm the part of I'm on the editorial board of a journal that is published in Armenia that is um, sponsored by Brill. So you know, Brill is, is one of the leading academic, acad academic publishers in the world. And the journal that I'm a part of is called Iran and the Caucasus. And I've been on the editorial board for, for, for a number of years now. It started in Armenia and it, and it really focuses on, on research in this part of the world. And it, it allows for scholars that would normally have the, have an opportunity to publish in other places, can publish in Armenia, in English, usually in English, sometimes in other languages. My wife, Marianne, homeschools, so we're allowed to homeschool here. We homeschool, we're part of a local fellowship here. We connect with local local Armenians, those are by and large our friends, which means we've had to, to learn local language to communicate. Very little is done in English here, so you can't get around just by speaking English, you really need to know the language. Right, right. Well, I'm going to talk with you about some other issues in just a moment, but let's stay on this one just for if we can. You're an academic living and working in Armenia. Uh, one of the misconceptions often about America and American Christians is that, you know, uh, the United States has a robust university system and a robust system of higher education. Uh, Europe, yes, it has the same. In fact, it has these historic universities and uh, that have you know global impact. But I think a lot of people don't understand how important the academy is in many other places in the world. And I know that you live and work in Armenia as an academic leader, and you find yourself in a community there that's uh, really quite outstanding in terms of its scholarship and in terms of uh, what it's con contributing to. Uh, you know, the global academic community. In fact, you were mentioning to me earlier about uh, some particular people that you work with there who are sort of world-class experts in their field. So tell us a little bit about what the academic life is like in Armenia and how we might be surprised at what's going on there compared to what we might assume is going on there, given our uh, really sort of jaded or prejudiced view of education in the world today. Armenia uh, during the Soviet times was, was known for its, its educational acumen. And it's, you know, when, when the Soviet Union fell, there, there were still a lot of pretty, you know, pretty important and solid educators here and, and academics. One of the foremost Kurdish ex experts lives in Armenia and does work here. He has published an etymology of the Kurdish languages that's, it's going to be two volumes and at least it's, he's won awards from, from, from presidents of countries for his work. Mm. There's, an, there's another uh, scholar um, that focuses on, on Yezidi Kurds, um, who her work on, on Yezidis is, is, is world class as well. That I don't know if you're going to find really any anywhere else. It's, I don't know if there's anyone that's going to be as accomplished as her. You have people who focus on on ethnic and religious minorities in this part of the world, like the, the, the like the Zaza people, the, the Tabush people, and 
they're doing cutting edge work here and they're, they're doing it with 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 limited resources that the internet here isn't is nearly as good as it is in the it is in the us and the west but the people are here the 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 resources are here in a sense where you can be around the people that you need to be around and it's it's amazing how on how what they can do with with what with what little they have that's fantastic and i'm I'm so glad you're a part of that community because I think it not only makes a contribution from Gateway to a global academic uh, community, it also allows that community to influence you and you to influence us as we think about what it means to have a global perspective, not only on our mission, but even global perspective on education and academics and all that's being done to just further the knowledge that we have about the world in which we live. So I'm surprised, quite frankly, at some of what you've taught me about what's happening there and delighted uh, to have my horizons expanded about what's happening in the academy globally. So, you know, that's one area of what it's like to have a global perspective. But now let's talk about another area that's maybe a, a little more uh, delicate and difficult, but still nevertheless very important to consider. And that is I want to talk about racism and how you are experiencing that in Armenia. You know, one of the problems that uh, Americans have is that we have this one perspective on problems that we think is the only perspective. And so in America, of course, we battle and deal with and struggle with racism. Uh, and in many parts of our country, it's more of a black-white divide. But in other parts of the country, it takes on different dimensions. But we tend to think that how we experience racism in America is the defining way that racism is expressed. And in fact, maybe the only place in the world where it's a real problem. But I know that you have lived in a lot of different places. You've lived there as a minority, and you yourself have been uh, the recipient of, or you might even say victim of racism. And so talk to us, Phil, about how you've experienced racism and how we can better understand racism as a global problem that needs global solutions. In, in all the countries that we've lived in, we've experienced racism in, in one form or another. Now, I'm white, I'm Anglo, and, but I'm, I'm part of a mixed race family. So when, when we walk down the street or we, we were together as a family, it catches people's eyes a little bit. You know, it's not as, as, as noticeable as, as like an African-American and, and, and an Anglo, but it's noticeable enough to where you, in each country you get some comments here or there, it's mostly made out of ignorance, but it, it's, it's more subtle than I would say in America. But you add to that, that, that laws for foreigners in some countries are different than, than for locals. Mm -hmm. So, um, which is more nationalism, I realize that. For, for example, in some countries where we lived in, it is perfectly legal to charge a different rate for a haircut or for, or for rent or for um, buying a car or whatever. There's a, there's a local rate and there's a foreigner rate. And you're saying and, that the foreigner rate is actually not just a cultural thing, it's a legal, uh, it's a legal act. It's, it's perfectly fine to do that. It is perfectly legal to do that, yes. <laughs> in, certain, in certain countries where we have been in, that it is perfectly legal and that's just, it's, it's, it's normal in, in many respects. And I'll never as understand racism like an African-American living in, in the U.S. Or, or another minority living in the U.S., 
but it, it does give me um, an appreciation just a little bit for some of the struggles that that that, that people have people have to go through and I hope it's given me a, a better and a greater ability to listen and and it, it definitely gives me an empathy because I've just just a little bit have experienced it not nearly the way people in America do but I have experienced it and you know it's heartbreaking when it's if it's you is one thing, but when it gets to your kids, right. that's, that's kind of where it gets, where, where it touches home a little bit. Yes. I think what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make today is simply this. Racism is a global problem and it requires global solutions. And the global solution for racism is the gospel. And I think that uh, teaching, preaching, and living the gospel is really uh, the only solution that transcends culture. Uh, it, it's the solution on Armenia, it's the solution in America, it's the solution in every place where there's this kind of racial division and tension. And so um, I, I, I'm just always uh, deeply moved when I hear you say something like uh, how this has affected your children. And that is a, a really uh, emotionally difficult aspect of what this problem brings to us. Uh, and I'm really also impressed with your measured response that that you recognize what's happening, you recognize that it's largely grounded in ignorance and also in cultural practice and even enshrined in legal uh, uh, permission, and yet you still manage to live and work and thrive in that context. So I'm grateful for your modeling of that for us. Another aspect of living in the places where you've lived is that you have often lived in war zones. Now, Phil, I... I've never lived in a war zone, and in fact, I don't even like people using battle analogies to describe what's going on in America because it's so far removed from anything like that. But tell us some of your experiences, where you've lived, and what that's been like, and how that shaped you as a global Christian. The, when we moved to Armenia a couple of years ago, we moved uh, during the, the latest Armenia-Azerbaijan war. It's, it's, over, it's over a disputed territory called Artsakh that is ethnically Armenian, but it's internationally recognized as, as part of Azerbaijan. When the USSR fell, there was a war between Armenia and, and Azerbaijan. Armenia won that war, and Azerbaijan has been wanting to get Artsakh or Karabakh back. When we moved here, I mean, we're, we're in the capital, so we're, we're quite safe from, from the action, but you could hear them by, by, by the we, you could hear some. You could hear the the planes. You could hear sometimes the 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 military the, the munitions going off. There's another area where there there, there has some issues called Nakhchivan, which is if you remember from from the the news a couple of years ago, Azerbaijan mistakenly shot down a a Russian helicopter. Well, that was in in, in Nakhchivan. It wasn't it wasn't in Artsakh. So you have all these different things. And for us, we're we're in the capital. We're we're, we're very safe. Uh, but it's it's for the people that 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 come back, and sometimes there was, there's, there's a hostel down the street from us that was filled with with, with Armenians from Artsakh because their their fathers were were fighting in the war, and they had no they they really didn't have a whole lot of parental supervision, so you know we would have connected them. A friend of ours had some some refugees from Artsakh stay with them. And, and it's just, it's a really, it was a really sad situation. I think that's part of what you've uh, modeled, and that is living in a war zone. You've had to interface with people who are directly impacted by the war. 
and you've just given one example of working with uh, these children. Um, do you have other examples of uh, ministry involvement or personal involvement where you've been engaging with people who are really involved in the war or directly impacted by the war? When, when some of these uh, these people come back from, from the war, we had, a, we had a friend of ours who um, had, he, who had uh, some of his people he knew from from our side to stay with them. They stayed with them for months and months and months. Well well the the the, the men were out fighting and with one of the with one of the men was in a tank and that tank got shot and got and got destroyed and he was the only one left. He he came back injured mm. and the PTSD it was more mental than it was physical because he saw all of his all of his, all of his comrades, all of his people in the tank die. And so he's he came back with some some serious PTSD, and in and, and I see myself in, in I'm like I'm not a psychologist, I don't know how to help this person. But all I know is I can pray, but you know sometimes you want to do more, and it really makes you feel weak and helpless. And that's where you just got to trust in the Lord's sovereignty and, and pray that people come here, come and, and, and get the, the people to get get the help they need. You, you can give medicine, and medicine is is, is, is one form to help, but you need to deal with the trauma. And it's really, and that's that, I wish I, I wish I were a counselor to do that, but I'm not. Right. So you, yeah, you, do, you help where you can. Right. Wow. I think about the helplessness of those feelings. Um, I talked with another person recently who was working in another global context who had really no medical training and she arrived at a village, and when they saw that she was Anglo, uh, there was this assumption by the villagers that, of course, she knew how to help them medically, and they came rushing down uh, to the boat where they were arriving with children that were ill and some that had been injured, and and she was overwhelmed by her powerlessness to do anything about the situation. It it, it really is heartbreaking uh, to live in a war zone or to live in a ministry context where human need is seemingly overwhelming, and yet our resources to meet those needs are, are really quite limited. And so my heart goes out to you, Phil, because I know these are friends of yours. These are not just uh, you know random people you're telling us stories about. These are people that you interface with, that you live around, fa- people whose families you know. And and it's a it's a challenge, and yet at the same time an opportunity uh, for you. And I'm I'm a little bit humbled and honored by what you're doing there and trying to work in a war zone. So let me ask you, uh, as a part of that, how you see uh, the church where you are making a difference in this context. And if you could at first uh, just describe for us what church is like in Armenia. You said it's one of the oldest Christian countries in the world, but I have a feeling that. The church has taken a lot of different forms over the last several hundred years. So what does it look like today? What's your interaction with uh, a church or churches like today? And then then we can talk more about maybe how the church is ministering in its context. But first, just tell us what church is like in Armenia today. Armenia is largely like 95% Armenian apostolic. That is um, the, the faith that, that Armenians hold to. It is part of the Eastern church. It is... Um, it is, uh, it, was, it is very different. It's not Catholic. It's not Orthodox. It's not Protestant. It's more, mo- more monophysites, which was a, a heresy that was condemned in one of the early church councils. Uh, they believe that 
their views on Christ are very different than ours, but they do believe that Jesus is all God. They do believe Jesus is all, is all man. They believe in the Trinity, but how they, they, they view the personhood, personhood of Christ is quite different than, than, than what we Protestants, what we Protestants believe. There is a, a small element of, of what we call evangelicals that are here. And we are part of, of an, if an evangelical Armenian church that is here. It's very small, maybe 30 or 40 people or so, but it is quite doctrinally sound. They um, would ascribe to the Baptist faith and message in, in doctrine. They're, they're quite, um, quite orthodox in the lowercase o in their, in, their, in their beliefs. And it's been great to work with them. And I think that is, you know, we want to be part of a local church and being part of a local church allows us to connect to the community. Phil, how did this church that you're a part of uh, get started and how did it develop Armenian leaders that uh, are able to sustain it in its context? There were, a, it's, it's very, the church is very new. It's only like two, three, four years old. And we haven't been here that long, but it started with, with local leaders who saw what was going on in, in the churches that they were involved in and, and started questioning things. And there were, there were some other expats here that I've never met that really came alongside of them and discipled them and mentored them. And from there, that led to, that led to, that led to a church. And you know, the question is, I guess we need to define what church is. And, and I go to my church history class, I do that. But I think it's, it's important for us to see what are, are the, what are the essential elements that makes a local church church? And how does a local church different, how's a local church different than a Bible study? And with, with COVID and, and, and you know, those are some, some hard questions we've all had to ask. Can you do church online? Is, is, church, is a local church really a local church if it's, if it's only online? And they've had to work through some of those, some of those same very issues. And it's been, it's been good to see them work through those issues and we're just starting to come alongside and, and be part and be submissive to their leadership as in, in, in help where, where they see um, it's best for us to help. And in the context where you're serving, uh, is, that, is this church able to meet openly? Is it uh, more of a persecuted minority? Or how is it perceived in the culture at large? With Armenia being a Christian nation, it's, it's okay to meet if you but there are certain there are there are restrictions. If you're not apostolic Armenian apostolic, there are certain legal restrictions and requirements that, that you have to meet. For example, you have to have a, a certain number of members to be considered a church. And if you don't in 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 the law's eyes, and if you don't meet those requirements, then legally you're not a church. Now the church that we're a part of doesn't meet those. So legally in the, in the eyes of the state, it may not be considered a local church. It's considered, you know, like a, like something else. But biblically, it would, it would meet those requirements. Yes, that's good. Well, we're coming down to the end now, and I want to ask you just one more broad question and let you reflect on it with me. Uh, the purpose of this podcast has been to help uh, our listeners develop a more global perspective. And we've talked about uh, what it looks like to be a part of the academy in Armenia, We've talked about racism and living in a war zone and developing churches and various issues like this that are part of the global community. But Phil, if I were just asking you generally, 
Why is a more global perspective important for American Christians? In, in other words, why do we want our listeners to have a more global perspective, and how will that help them and enrich them as Christian leaders? What would you say is the reason for the need for this better or broader or more global perspective on, Christian, on the Christian movement? I think we need to realize that there's a difference between modernization and westernization. We, uh, a number of years ago, went to, to visit Turkey and Iran back to back. And while we were in Turkey, you know, we saw Turkey had Papa John's, they had Domino's, they had Starbucks, but you couldn't drink the tap water. We went to Iran, there are no Western re- restaurants, but you could drink the tap water. And I think this is important because Christianity doesn't revolve around the West or America. Christianity, in many ways, is living back East. And that's why what I like to do in my church history classes is, is focus a bit on, on, on Eastern Christianity because it's often not addressed as much. And that's kind of where, where Christianity is moving back. It's helpful for us to see what things are cultural and what things are just like metacultural, what things are cultural and what things are really, really Christian. I think that Americans can, American Christians can gain and expand their perspective by, by going overseas and going to some of these more Eastern places. I can, it's helpful to be around people who don't always agree with you. It allows you to have an open mind. It helps refine your point of view. And as, as Christianity starts moving back to, to the two-thirds world and starts becoming the minority, I mean, the majority part, the majority religion, Instead of instead of the minority religion, I think it's it'll be helpful for Americans. I could give you, I mean, J.D. Greer, is, I think, is a great example. I haven't seen J.D. In, in, in years, but I went to seminary with him, and he went overseas to the East. And while he had a had a passion for 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 for, for the lost before that, I saw him afterwards, and and he, you you can see what he what he what he's done with the summit. And, and there, I don't know if there's a church that is as as a heart for missions more than than JD's church, than the church that, that JD pastors. And I think a lot of that has to do with his two years that he spent overseas. Yeah. Well, thank you, Phil. This has been excellent. You've helped us to have a a better perspective on not only what's happening in Armenia but what's happening around the world, and helped us to understand why it's important to to have a global perspective on the Christian movement, have a global perspective on the church, and really have a global perspective on uh, world issues so that we might not be so narrowly focused on how we see it from our little corner of the world. Gateway Seminary is biblical, missional, and global. We want you to think about this as you lead this week. We want you to have a broader perspective. We want you to see the world and all the possibilities in it. And we want you to understand that God is a global God who's the same in all contexts, in all places, and that His truth is always applicable. Keep this in mind this week as you lead on.